you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them up to James chapter 3? We're in a series called Faith That Lives. We hope you have your Bibles this morning. I was remiss in letting you know that the, uh, the, the annual reports are finished. And they are available for you to be able to pick up right outside in the foyer. The secretaries worked very, very hard. Uh, they look like this. And those who wrote reports, they're in there. The upcoming agenda for the congregational meeting, etc. So please pick up your, your copy, whether you're a member or not, uh, out there in the foyer, right outside the doors of the sanctuary. We would like for you to be able to know what's happening here at Cornerstone. If you have your Bibles, open them up again to j- chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16, or rather 17 and 18 this morning. And throughout history... Humanity has sought after wisdom. You know that. I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here for a minute. Jewish sages described this heavenly wisdom as, listen to this, quote, the breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. So this is, this is the attitude that the Jewish leaders had about wisdom, that it came from God. They pictured this wisdom, this abstract concept that is very difficult to define. They pictured this wisdom as sitting by the throne of God and being sent forth from the holy heavens. In fact, a, whole, a, um, a famous rabbi wrote that, quote, all wisdom is from the Lord and it remains with him forever. Now, you and I probably have a lot of different understandings and definitions for what wisdom is. I know years ago, here's how I would have defined wisdom. I was working with my brother John, who's a contractor, he's an electrician, and he said, Tim, I want you to go ahead and wire up these outlets in this room that I'm putting together. And he says, make sure you don't touch the side of them because they're live. And I'm thinking inwardly, why doesn't he just turn the power off? But he, t- he keeps them live. In fact, there's a radio plugged into the outlet and the radio is playing. Now, I'm not a gifted contractor. In fact, I'm not really gifted much at anything that requires the use of your hands. And so I went over there to wire up these outlets and found out that uh, 110 volts can make the hair go up in the back of your head. Now, he looks at me and he says, doesn't the fact that the radio is plugged in and playing tell you that it's live? And I said, yeah, I just forgot. Five minutes later, friends, no kidding. I'm wiring the same outlet. I do the same thing. Now, some people would say, well, wisdom I don't have because it's learning by experience. That's how a lot of people define wisdom. The Greeks, by the way, sought after wisdom as well. Around the same time that this book of James was being written, a Roman philosopher, Cicero, stated that wisdom was, quote, the best gift of the gods and is, quote, the mother of all good things. But friends, it was the Jews who understood the meaning of wisdom. You ready? Here's what wisdom is. You want to write this down or you want to pound it into your mind as an anchor bolt because you need to know what wisdom is because I think a lot of us have misunderstood it. Wisdom is the God-given skill to live righteously. Here it is again. Wisdom is the God-given skill to live righteously. It's not intellectual. It's behavioral. It's the application of knowledge. Its source, James plainly states, is from heaven. It's from God. Now, here's what I like about James. He's, he's got to be my favorite writer in the New Testament. 
Because James doesn't bog anybody down in the technicality of anything. Here's what James does. He says, you know what? A lot of people, probably the majority of people, they don't learn through definitions. They learn by seeing something in action. That's the way I always learn. That's my best mode of learning. Here's what James does. Instead of giving you and I a technical definition of what, what James is, you know, wrapping it up really precisely in a theological little statement, he shows us how wisdom functions and he shows us what the result of wisdom is. Listen, in your life and in the life of a redemptive community called church. Here it is, verse 17 and 18. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So what do we learn? If we're going to grapple with this mysterious abstract, this thing called wisdom, something that everybody has a definition for, but rarely does anybody truly understand it. If we're going to really understand wisdom, then let's look at what James says. He gives us seven fruit that wisdom creates. Number one, first of all, pure. Look at, word, look at the word again, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, everybody look, is first of all pure. You see, the word pure originally was used by the ancient Greeks for cleansing ceremonies that would make the worshiper worthy to go into the presence of their God, little g God. Now here it is again. For the Greeks, you had to do all of these rituals. You had to do all these ceremonies. And if you did these ceremonies, then you were now pure enough and worthy enough to go stand in the presence of your God. In fact, Jesus takes this concept and he redeems it in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Listen, for they will see God. So he takes this concept and he puts a redemptive focus to it. Those who have God's wisdom have first been cleansed by Christ's blood, having received his purity, and as a result are able to lead a morally pure life. Now listen, wisdom from God is first of all, James says, pure. What that means is this, all of God's wisdom... All of God's understanding, all that God gives has no shade of darkness in it. There's no shade of evil. It's all pure. There is no unholiness. But there's more to this word pure than what we've seen so far. Here it is. It implies that there's an absence of spiritual behavior or ethical imperfections. Let me put it in, in, in a little bit neater form. A pure heart, listen, has un mixed devotion to God. A pure heart has unmixed devotion to God. Here, now listen, wisdom's job, now this is what is so misunderstood. Wisdom's job, why God gives generously to those who ask, as we'll read that in a little while, is so that wisdom would move in us to pursue purity. Wisdom functions in a way that brings double-minded believers into single-mindedness. In chapter 4, we're going to get to it in a few weeks, James tells the believers to purify your hearts, you double-minded. Friends, listen, the purity of our hearts is the overarching attribute of our wisdom, of God's wisdom. James writes that this wisdom is, look what it says, first, first. 
Not second, third, or fourth. First of all, pure. Then everything else comes out of that. The rest of the fruit come after purity. It's first of all pure, then peace-loving. You see, purity is the first and foremost attribute of God's wisdom. Our purity, listen, this is so important, our purity determines the outworking of the other qualities of wisdom. I'm going to say that again. Our purity determines the outworkings of the other qualities of wisdom. All who possess wisdom from above, all who have asked and God has generously supplied, all who have His wisdom are to make purity in their moral and devotional lives their primary goal. Now let me ask you a question, if I could. Be honest, to interact in your, with your own selves, what did your eyes look at this week? What did your hearts run after this week? Purity is the outworking of wisdom. And I'm going to put that backwards. Wisdom creates purity in our hearts. It applies to all, but especially to those who teach. Remember the context here. James is primarily speaking to those who are in a position of wise and understanding, the teachers of the church. In other words, if you're wise and understanding, friends, then purity is going to be evident in your life. Look at the second fruit that wisdom produces. Remember the title of the sermon is Wisdom, the Power to Live Right. What is the second fruit or attribute of wisdom? It's peace-loving. You see, James is writing in the first century to churches that were filled with congregational meetings that lasted hours and had everybody's opinion aired and ended in disunity. I'm bringing that into today's century. James was used to dealing with with, uh, with churches that were filled with factions and divisions and strife. And at the helm of all of this disunity, you've got to understand this, you will not make sense of James. At the helm of all of this were the teachers. And many of these teachers were teaching with worldly wisdom. God's wisdom, however, produces peace in the church. God's wisdom produces peace in our relationships. Friends, do you have, do you have a relationship which is marked by anger and discord? Wisdom is given to you so that you can pursue peace. Well, Pastor Tim, I'm tried. My spouse has left. Or my children won't talk to me. Or my coworker will have nothing to do with me. Friends, this is your promise. God's wisdom produces a desire in you to pursue peace. If you're in a fractured relationship and you have no desire to pursue peace, you do not yet have God's wisdom. The hyphenated word in the NIV, peace loving, it's simply translated peaceful. The working through of differences and conflict, it's it's the working through of it, not the avoidance of it. Let me explain. A couple had just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary and someone asked the husband, what's the secret of your marital bliss? Well, the husband answered, he says, well, early on in our marriage, we made an agreement together that whenever I do anything that gets my wife upset, she'll just come right to me and get off her chest. And whenever I do anything that, uh, or she does anything that gets me upset, I have permission to go out for long walks. 
He says, I think the secret to our marital bliss is largely that I've lived an outdoor life. (laughs) You see, peace-loving pursues peace, not avoids it. Peace-loving goes after reconciliation with the wisdom of God, not says, I'm going to sweep it under the rug and hope time heals. See, James is describing that the wisdom God gives works for peace. A congregation living out his wisdom will be a church that works for peace. But we, don't, we haven't really defined yet what this word peaceful means or what it looks like. The Greek word here has a basic meaning of right relationship between each other and God. Sherry Isley, your mother, Irene, is the Greek name here for peace. It means that we pursue or have, if you have peacefulness, you have a right relationship with other people and with God. True wisdom then, God's wisdom produces right relationships so that we can have peace. That's what it does. It produces a person who says, I cannot exist where there is not peace. Years ago, I had a person no longer at this church, but I had a person that uh, I had talked to several times on a Sunday, a couple times during the week, and he really was sort of ignoring me. Now, he was in here one day during the week when I was in the office and he was cleaning up, doing something in the sanctuary. And, um, and I, I want, it was just bothering me. I couldn't even uh, function. Whenever I was around him, all I thought of is that we're not, we're not in a relationship that's marked with peace. I came in here and I said, brother, I said, is there something that you haven't told me that you're upset with me? And he says, no, no, I'm fine. Only to leave the church a few months later. Friends, peacefulness, what wisdom produces is a desire that says you and I are not at peace, then I am not at rest and I must come to you and take the initiative and do what I can and the power of God to repair this relationship. That's what peacefulness is. That's what peace loving fruit of wisdom does. The person walking in heavenly wisdom longs for peace. Unrest and conflict drives wise people to the throne to cry out for the God of peace to move and to reconcile. They pray with St. Francis this prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hate, may I bring love. Where offense, may I bring pardon. And may I bring unison in place of discord. Now, friends, listen. Peace-loving wisdom doesn't always mean success. There are some relationships that will not be repaired this side of heaven, but it's the movement. It's the unrest that lack of peace brings. It's the desire to come to the throne repeatedly and trust in the God of peace. What's the third fruit of wisdom? Number three, consider it. We've looked at purity uh, from which the rest of these spring, and then we've looked at peace loving, and now consider it. There was a great linguist who looked at this word in the Greek and came to the conclusion that there's absolutely no English or Latin words that can properly translate it. The poet Matthew Arnold called it sweet reasonableness. But the idea is clear. Here's what it means to be considerate. Now listen, this is so revolutionary to so many of us. It describes a person who, although wronged, and although possessing the right... To be offended gives up their rights 
in order to reconcile. That's what that word considerate means. It means we give up our right to be right. Though wronged and though we believe we are right, peace is a higher goal than proving that we're right. It's not that we try to get peace at the loss of integrity. It's not that we forfeit truth for the sake of peace, which is why James puts purity as the foundation of it. But it's peace as being more important than who is right in the conflict. Friends, if you ever come into marriage counseling and to biblical counseling, more often than not, you're going to be helped to understand that the first step in resolving conflict is giving up the right to be right. But I'll be a doormat. I'll be taken advantage of. The truth is, you will be exercising God's wisdom and living after the pattern of Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Giving up our right to be right entrusts ourselves to the one who judges justly. Kent Hughes, who is a commentarian and a pastor, he commented on this word with this illustration. His own pastor was slandered by someone in their church, and he had a right to defend himself. But instead, he refused, and he defended the very one who attacked him by listing the pressures that man was under and the necessity for the staff to be tolerant. Friends, that's what it means to be considerate. It means to give up my rights to be right. It means to go forward and to pursue peace and reconciliation instead. There's a fourth fruit, and it's called submissive. It's a fruit that King David demonstrated. If you remember the story that uh, he and he had 600 men who were warriors, assume, assuming that they all had their families as well, it was a, quite a monumental task to keep them fed. 400 of his men and him went to a wealthy man, or he sent people to this wealthy man named Nabal, but they were rudely rejected. This man had so many sheep and goats, and yet he would not give anything to David, even though David protected his shepherds and his crops and his property in the fields. He had the right to be fed. But Nabal rudely rejected him. So David armed 400 of his men and they went to destroy him and all the males in his household. But on the way, Nabal's wife came out to meet them and she eloquently argued against the violence. Here's what David says as a result. And here's what this word submissive means. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. David's willingness, listen, here's what it means, to be open to persuasion is the demonstration of what it means to be submissive. Here's what it means. If you want to be submissive, if you want the wisdom of God producing the submissiveness that is patterned after Christ's own heart, it means to submit to persuasion or being open to reason. This is how King David lived. Those who are closed to reason, friends, and those who will not submit to persuasion, listen clearly, the Bible's got a name for them, and the name is fool. 
Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 18, a fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. Listen, do you refuse to bend? Now, remember, interact with this. Do you refuse to bend? Even when godly people around you view something differently. Or once you make up your mind is the case closed. You see, wisdom, friends, moves us to be open to reason, not double-minded, not go where the wind blows, not fair-weather believers, but open to reason. Abraham Lincoln, on one occasion, in order to please a certain politician, he issued a command to transfer certain regiments. And when Secretary of War Edwin Stanton received the order, he refused to carry it out, saying that the president was a fool. When Lincoln was told of this, now listen to this, this is what it means. He said, if Stanton said I'm a fool, then I must be, for he is nearly always right. I'll see it for myself. And as the two men talked, the president came to see that his decision was a serious mistake. And without hesitation, he withdrew it. How about the fifth fruit of wisdom? It's full of mercy and good fruit. What's it mean to be full of mercy? Friends, I want you to understand the distinction between grace and between mercy because we've too often blurred the lines between them. God's mercy, listen, is His loving and benevolent pity for the misery brought about by our own sin. Now listen to that again. God's mercy is His loving and benevolent pity for the misery brought about by our own sin. Here's, what it, here's how it distinguishes itself from grace. Grace is how God extends Himself to take away the sin. Mercy is how God moves to deal with the misery that sin produces. Mercy targets the misery that comes as a consequence of sin and it actively displays itself in the effort to lessen and remove that misery. So listen, here's what wisdom's doing, friends. If you're asking for wisdom, if you have come to a point in your life where the way is dark and there's a crossroads and you know not which way to turn and you are asking for God to give you specific information, you're not asking for wisdom. You're asking for biblically understanding and knowledge. Wisdom is what God will give you to be able to trust in Him, to be peace-loving, to have pure hearts, to be able to be sincere and impartial in the midst of not knowing which way to go. If you're praying for wisdom, then what God is going to do in your hearts, He's going to enlighten you to the misery that people are in all around you and give you the motivation to move toward them to relieve their suffering. That's what it means to be full of mercy. If you, have, if, if you know somebody that's in misery and you do nothing about it, then there is no wisdom in you. Pastor Tim, that's harsh. I'm not saying it. This is what the Word of God teaches. If you want wisdom to produce fullness of mercy, then it's us responding to misery. Whether that's in your homes, it's in your neighborhoods, it's in your schools, it's at your jobs, it's in our churches, or it's in our communities. Merciful, compassionate works are the good fruit that James mentions. But there's a sixth fruit 
of wisdom. It's called impartial. Friends, this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is found. It literally means not to be parted or divided. Wisdom produces in you and I the power to live without uncertainty, indecision, vacillation, or doubt. That's what this means to be impartial. It means to have confidence in God, and the confidence in God translates in the way that we live without doubt and in trust. In short, being impartial means I am living steadily, not taking one position in one circumstance and another in a different situation. It's the power, and I'm going to explain a word that James keeps using. It's a phrase. It's the power to live single-mindedly. Look at James chapter 1, verse 6. When he asks, he must believe. It's when you ask for wisdom. He must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. If you're doubting God, but yet you're asking for wisdom, you're going to go back and forth, back and forth, not knowing which one really is of God. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Not only is God's wisdom without double-mindedness, it produces in you and I who receive it a singularity of purpose. It brings our knowledge of God into collision with the way that we live it out. Single-mindedness, friends, let me put it so simply that all of you are going to have it emblazoned on your mind. You ready? Single-mindedness is simply faith plus deeds. It's the knowledge of God and the righteous life that accompanies it. That's what single-minded is. Mindedness is. It's what the opposite, or it's really rather what, what impartiality is. It's what wisdom is aiming to do. The goal of wisdom is to make men and women and children of God live out in deeds their faith and knowledge. That's what James, friends, that's the entire book of James. It's singularly what it's about. Finally, number seven, the fruit, the seventh fruit of wisdom is sincere. God's wisdom moves you and I to live without hypocrisy, live without deceit, live without hiding. It means if somebody somehow had x-ray vision into our hearts, we could stand before them in the confidence of the blood of Christ. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes Mysteries, he used to tell how he sent a telegram to 12 friends, all of whom were of great virtue and considerable position in their society. Here's the message. You ready? He sent a telegram with this message, quote, fly at once. All is discovered. Within 24 hours, the story goes, all 12 of those men fled their country. Sincere means you have the power to live without shame. You have the power to live without acting. It's the power to live without pretense. Who we say we are really is who we are. God's wisdom, it has no duplicity in it. It has no shades of darkness. And it creates believers and churches that live out what they say. If you want Cornerstone to proclaim the word of God and to live it out wherever we are, then we're praying for wisdom because that's the function of wisdom, to make us sincere. I'm going to summarize all seven of these with this. Friends, do you pray for wisdom? Do you pray for wisdom? 
If so, then you are praying for God, listen, for God to produce in you a life of godliness and virtue. That's wisdom's aim. To life whereby His grace you can have the power to live right. That we live with moral purity and the strength to resist temptation. Wisdom provides a life that is marked by our efforts to live at peace with God and at peace with each other. Wisdom provides the humility to bend and to give up the right to be right, refusing to defend our honor by attacking other people. Wisdom produces the ability to be open to reason and to submit to persuasion. It works so that we would be desiring and empowered to do what we can to relieve the suffering of other people. Wisdom makes us live with single-minded pursuit of following hard after Jesus Christ with our faith producing redemptive deeds. And friends, finally, wisdom empowers us to live real. Without masks, sincerely the way God wants us to live. Don't you hunger to live real? So many of us come to church, and I'm guilty at times of this, and we put our godly mask on, and we walk out of here and go home, and our godly mask goes off, and the real person that we are comes out for our wonderful family to receive And wisdom aims at taking the godly mask and throwing it away and making who you are in Christ the way that we live. It's the purpose of wisdom. It's why God gives generously of His wisdom to all who ask because it matures His people to live out the knowledge of who He is with single-minded abandon. Is it any wonder then why Solomon instructs his son to turn his ear to wisdom, apply his heart to understanding, call for it, cry for it, look for it, search for it like you would a treasure? Proverbs 2 says, Then, thus you will walk in the ways of good men and keep to the paths of righteousness. Friends, listen, wisdom makes us walk in the ways of the righteous. We looked at the fruit of wisdom. I'm going to so quickly, in a matter of just a couple minutes, tell you the result if the Lord gives it to us and we walk in accordance with it. What's the result of wisdom? Look at verse 18. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Hang in there. I'm almost done. Verse 18, friends, it's extremely difficult to translate. The Revised Standard Version translates it literally. It says, quote, the harvest of righteousness. Listen is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, to James, many in the church were not making peace. Rather, because of their bitter envy, their selfish ambition, they were cultivating strife, and the harvest was discord and evil. Can you imagine sitting in a first century church? Some of you are saying, yeah, I used to sit in one. Um, in first century church filled with strife, filled with anger, filled with backbiting, filled with slander, filled with judgmentalism, filled with factions. And, and I like that group, and no, I like this group. This is what this these churches were struggling with and James writes this five chapter book as a solution to this and the solution is wisdom because when we really receive wisdom wisdom changes our lives James wants teachers who are being matured by God's wisdom and who cultivate peace and who will see a harvest one day of righteousness Wisdom's goal is to produce in us righteousness. It's a good life. 
That's why James 3.13 said, Who is wise and understanding among you, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done, and the humility that comes from wisdom. Friends, I'm almost done. Listen, the seeds that bring the harvest of righteousness, friends, listen, they can never, ever, ever flourish in an atmosphere other than right relationships between individuals and God. Friends, listen to this. William Barclay said it. I'm quoting it. Those who disturb personal relationships and are responsible for strife and bitterness have cut themselves off from the reward which God gives to those who live a godly life. That's why we are told, warn a divisive man once, warn him a second time, and after that have nothing at all to do with him. If you want peace, you want a harvest of righteousness, you want a good life done in humility, you want this church known in this area for helping the community, for loving those within our walls and for preaching the word of God, then friends, we have got to ask for wisdom. And may we ask our generous God to give us wisdom to live this righteous, peaceful life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is not complicated. It's not simplistic. There's nothing cheapened about it. But it's not complicated. It is simple. And your spirit illuminates. It turns the light switch on in our minds to enable, enable us to understand it. And Lord, your word says clearly that wisdom, God's wisdom, comes only from God. And the wisdom that this world produces will only end in discord and evil. But your wisdom ends in a lot of beautiful things. Lord, we pray that we would be people who are filled with your wisdom. Father, give it to us generously. May we receive it, not doubt. May we understand its purpose. Its purpose is to produce in us a righteous life. And to make Cornerstone and other Christ-centered churches, churches of redemptive community that are powerful, both in and out of their walls. Lord, I pray for that. And I ask for my, my friends, my brothers and sisters here, that they would call out for wisdom and that they would be given purity and peace-loving and impartial and sincere and all the other fruit that wisdom brings. And in Jesus' name, amen.